Welcome to Uncaged. Uncaged. A show celebrating thought leadership from today's top business leaders. The program provides a voice to amazing executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the world of commerce tomorrow. And now, please welcome our host, Bant Breen, as we begin another Uncaged episode. Today, we are speaking with Brad Channer. Hey, Brad, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? (laughs) I'm well, I'm well. It's great to talk to you, Brad. Uh, Brad Channer is the CFO and COO of Roto VR. Um, He is an accomplished CFO and COO of many, many different types of uh, small to medium-sized businesses along the way. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about a ton of that learning a ton of the tips and tricks that he has to to set up a business effectively. Um, but before we get there, I mean, Brad has an extraordinary background. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your career today. I love it. Everyone always wants to start with this conversation. So, uh, yeah, so no, it, um, yeah, I, I came into the world slightly differently. Um, I actually started this world as a performer. So I, um, I, uh, I studied acting and went to the Royal Academy of Music and did musical theatre. So, yeah, I did kids' TV back in Australia for a little while on a show called Bounce House. Played myself in a character called Monkey Mike who uh, in a giant monkey suit. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Um, yeah, so I started the world as an actor and then uh, ended up um, uh, the show got canned and uh, I got... Um, disgruntled and bought a one-way ticket to London and uh, and arrived in the UK 14 years ago with 70 quid in my back pocket uh, and uh, living on a couch, getting people into nightclubs for a pound a person on the streets of Soho in the snow. <laughs> joy, joy. Yeah, so, so yeah, slightly different to other people. No, no, no. So, so, uh, so, tell me a little bit about how you got from there to really, I, I'd say, having an extraordinary background in the uh, operations and finance space, and really helping these companies get going. Yeah, so I, um, I have always been entrepreneurial. I've always been into sales and marketing and everything else, and um, I found myself. Um, when doing shows, the pay was so bad. So, you know, you're doing eight shows a week and you're walking home with like five, 600 quid a week. And when your rent's 300 quid, it's, you know, you got to, and, and then you get your transport on top. There was just no money to eat off. So I didn't really want to go and do teaching or anything, even though I enjoyed it. But I thought, you know what, I, um, I'll start my own business. I've always wanted to. So I started a company called Free Beer. Which again, I worked as an unemployed actor. You worked in pubs most of your life. So, and I love sales and marketing. And I figured out this trick where if you gave people free drinks, they would come in, obviously, to venues. And when you're in London, there's venues in every corner. So, just when smartphone apps were starting to become a thing, I started this app for free beer. So, you buy one, get one free once a day around London. It was to get you into bars. And then I sold your data. Um, back in the days when you're allowed to sell data in the UK. So, and that's how I made money. And um, it was a disaster. It was amazing. Um, everything went wrong that could go wrong. Um, and I got some amazing scars. And there's this great guy, um, 
Honestly, admit. those are so it's it, it's something that we don't talk enough about, which is those you know, those kind of like uh, tumultuous uh, moments <laughs> where every it, just when you think you hit the bottom, there's some other crisis that happens, and 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 it. But if you have that that type of experience, it really builds character and makes you so so powerful going forward. But you need them. And I, I met this guy once called David at John Williams, a really nice guy, old Welsh man. And he once, I was telling him a story once, and he just said, mate, if you haven't got the fucking scars, you've got nothing. But in a Welsh accent, which I definitely can't do. And, but he had a point because that, what do you, what do you, you know, it's, it's, I reflect everything I learned that went wrong are things that I was able to then stop other people doing. And some things that, you know, were quite straightforward, like, you know, trying to start a business with no business plan or financial model um, and just winging it, um, <laughs> you know, um, to, to, you know, to, to going into business, making sure you're in business with a person, you know, with the right people and having the right team around you so you could actually grow and scale your business, surrounding yourself by people who know more than you do. I always say to people, the uh, you got everyone knows more than you do. Never think you know everything. The per the girl who makes your coffees in the morning knows more about making coffees than you bloody do. So if you're in a business that makes coffees, then get that girl around you to make the coffees because you can't do it. So everyone has a skill in an area that you aren't as skilled in, and it's important. Just it's the one thing entrepreneurs always mess up: too scared to not surround themselves by the right people. You know. Um, yeah, so basically, it sounds like all of this experience um, really allowed you to, to bridge into working with others uh, to help them, right? Or yes. how, did, how did that shape? Yeah, so I, um, yeah, so after my, uh, after, after, after Freebeer didn't work out, uh, I turned it into a magazine and, and that, uh, that worked out, which was good. And then um, I fell into consultancy at a, a friend of mine who had a gym. Um, and someone gave him a million quid for funding, which is just ridiculous for a gym. And um, I came on board when there wasn't much money left. And um, again, another really good learning lesson. Um, and for both of us, me and him. And it was my first sort of COO role and CFO role, but didn't really realize it. Um, and the term rearranging the chairs in the Titanic comes into mind. And it was a lot of that. But again, a wonderful lesson because I was learning again on the job, watching this in real life, working with this real life, dealing with creditors and debtors and trying to figure out, you know, there was no sales strategy. So writing sales strategies, marketing strategies, plans, how all these things will start to work and come about and how are we going to build this business and infrastructure. But I had no idea what I was, I had no idea what I was doing was actually called being a CFO or COO. I just thought it was just common sense. And after that, I decided, you know what, I quite enjoy this. And then I, I had a mate who was an FD and said, you know, what you're doing is fine, you know, is being an accountant. And I was like, fuck that. I don't wear checkered shirts. I'm not an accountant. Come on. Look at me. I'm not going to do tax in my life. I'm not an accountant. But yeah, I, it's when I, yeah, so that was wrong. So I went off and I got fully qualified and um, uh, became a SEMA. I'm a SEMA fellow now. So I uh, went through all that. And did all that fun, fun and jazz, 
And uh, I never looked back. And then from there, because of my experience of having my own companies and working with others, I had a knack for funding, fundraising. So finding funding and helping startups realize what they were doing, uh, what, what you know, to help them get that money, what they needed to do. So there was all these brilliant ideas. You had these amazing startups and great companies, but they had no idea of how to get those ideas into a shape that someone would invest in them. So I found myself in this world where I was helping uh, helping these companies build these financial models and business plans for the owners and beefing up their ideas, making them commercial and making them successful. And started my own practice doing so and thoroughly enjoyed it for three, four years and ended up working with 60 to 70 clients on a whole bunch of different things and raising 15, 20 million for them over the years for different companies. And again, it was an amazing learning curve and experience for me because then suddenly not just I then got experience in huge amounts of sectors from SaaS to, you know, B2B to B2C to working with manufacturing companies and learning how to, you know, doing you know, doing modeling and being able to do infrastructure and strategies for a company that has, you know, even now Roto V, every Roto chair has three and a half thousand parts in every single pair. Um, that come from different countries that then get assembled in China and then get exported to different countries. And to be able to learn how to do all that, it, having one's own practice is was incredibly um, rich in experience. And it's like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think for any company, just getting away, seeing how to orchestrate all of those elements in a way that provides a solution and then working hard to get that to be more efficient and structured and scalable is mm. is kind of the the key um it's fascinating to me to look at how how we're how we we fund startups um i would say mostly in the us this is the case but um perhaps it's true a bit in the uk and a couple other markets where we essentially flood them with with startup cash you know mm. uh, very early on and you know, a friend of mine just, you know, basically got a huge round the other day, um, and they're so far away from profitability, and <laughs> and you just it, you, you create these kind of distorted realities where people mm. think they're successful, but they're really only successful for their investors, you know, and 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 and, and they don't fully get that, you know, like you're so, rough. You're singing yeah. to the converted. You're singing. You're preaching to the converted here, and I. It, it's amazing. It, it, it. I always have something when I work with with companies, because um, now I now I work full time for businesses. I don't have my consulting practice, and I, I now specialize in tech companies who want to scale and grow and 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 need those next couple of rounds of investment, and if they ever have an unrealistic valuation, uh, and I can't convince the 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 board or the CEO that that valuation does not really suit the company. You know, it's not matching. I always say, well, let's go to San Francisco because <laughs> if if you want to be completely unrealistic, go to West Coast America and they'll fund fucking anything. It's it's about having a. It's like what was that what was that company the other day? The guy got a one billion pound valuation on an idea. And had celebrities put money in and everything else. 
but it's really yeah, interesting. I mean, it's, look, it's a science. I mean, I, mean, I don't, I, I don't want to knock those amazing. Oh no, no, I'm definitely not. I'm if, not knocking anyone. But like, if, if you know, for example, something really justifies that valuation, that's fine. Um, it, what I, what I worry about is kind of the companies that I think fall into your orbit, which would be these companies that actually have good ideas, right? That, that, that are, that, that sh- they should grow. They might not be a $10 billion company or a hundred billion dollar company, but mm. they might actually succeed at being a $300 million company. And guess what? That's not too shabby, right? Like, no, the, world, I mean, like, the, like the world could need, needs more $300 million companies. So it's actually quite good for communities around the world. And I, and I, just, I, and I feel yeah. like that valuation question that you hit on is, is, is spot on, right? I, I despise the term unicorn. I really hate it when people use that term because I have this, uh, I have a card somewhere here on my desk. It's a card that basically says unicorns don't exist. And it's a picture of a horse with a, with a cone on its head. And I used to, I love it. I found it at a gift shop once and it does my head in because, because Facebook never woke up one day. Mark Zuckerberg said, you know what? I'm going to have a unicorn today. And just suddenly it appeared. It doesn't work like that. You have a business that is scalable and it works and you have a plan and a strategy and you grow it and it either works and it doesn't. The market will decide what's going to be a unicorn. If we end gain and try too hard to make our companies into these massive things, we won't succeed. We'll be trying too hard. You just got to have the right objective. Know what you want. Have your house in order and have your plans in order and the market will decide whether you're going to become a massive company or not. And I get I always have this big chat when I meet CEOs and entrepreneurs of these sort of businesses. And it's all good to aim for the stars and I'm all for that. But if you don't get your one billion pound valuation, it doesn't mean you failed. And this is the. I meet lots of entrepreneurs of all sorts and shapes and sizes. And I did some, um, I did some uh, work with the Welsh government uh, about, you know, six, seven years ago, a bit of volumes paid, but, you know, workshops to teach people on growing businesses and starting companies. And um, I remember meeting all these entrepreneurs who have companies that turn over four, 500,000 or even some of them only 10 grand. And I'm like, I'll chat to them and I'll be like, so they're like, oh, my failed it's terrible it's not working and i said well hang on how much do you turn over enough money to pay yourself and they're like yeah yeah yeah." and your staff yeah yeah do you pay all your bills yep great you're successful fantastic like success is what you want it to be um and if you have a business that can actually turn over enough money to wipe its face and have a little bit left over and everyone's happy i don't see what the problem is um, yeah, no, and I, I would say that I, I see these these companies come out of the incubators, um, at least the kind of the high profile incubators, with thirty, forty million dollar valuations, with literally nothing, no clients, no nothing, and and they're very proud of themselves. They're very you can and you can see it, and I can imagine what it must feel like. You know, like I was I was an entrepreneur too when I was twenty, you know, twenty years old, but but the. The, the problem really is that next round, which is, oh. you know, they, they I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've told people, like, listen, you got to get some revenue in now. Like, 
And they're like, yeah, yeah, but that's not what we're trying to do this. We're trying to do this. And, and, and they almost always lose control of their companies. I, I see it happen like nine out of 10 times. It's crazy yeah, that the, the founders lose control to very early. And, and this, is the, this is the main problem, yeah. but it's also a problem for the VC and the investor as well, because, I mean, first of all, yeah, you get an unrealistic valuation for your business and trying to justify that valuation when sales do start coming in becomes harder because I was, I, I was touching on it before and I wasn't trying to diss the one billion pound dream company, but I wasn't dissing it, but you're selling a dream for a billion, right? Now I can sell, anyone can sell a dream. To put substance behind that dream is when the problems start. So if I have a billion pound valuation, how much do I need to make in sales or revenue or cash coming into that company at what point in time to continue selling that dream to my investors to keep that valuation? And that's where the pressure is. It's great. Someone wants to give me money for a billion pound. I'll take it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not an idiot. But then on the other hand, I have to now think about how I'm going to turn over 10 billion pounds to get their money to, or, or how am I going to create that exit for 50 billion pounds to make that investment worthwhile for my investors. And that's the pressure. And that's why I always think a bit, I always have this question for those VCs that put that money in at that valuation. Cause I, I just think, do you re how are you going to make it back? <laughs> like I'm, do you really think that, that will be worth that one day. Well, I mean, honestly, I don't think they, I, I, I think it's a little bit of a power move. I mean, look, the reality yeah. is if I, if I do evaluation at that high level, they kind of know that uh, the, the founders might not hit that, the, 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 the revenue mm -hmm. goals and they'll, they end up getting more control over the businesses. So in I, some I ways it's a power move. Yeah. Hugely. And I just want to quickly say at this point, by the way, any VC listening right now, I will happily take your money at a billion pound valuation. So please don't think I'm not dissing you. All right. I want to make that really clear. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're all, we're, we're all, yeah. Yeah. We're all on the same page on, on that one. So, 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 I mean, the company that you work with now and, and all yep. of the businesses that you've been kind of shaping, have been going through quite a, uh, uh, I'd say, uh, a difficult moment here. Um, mm -hmm. The pandemic really changed a lot for for companies. And I'd just be curious to kind of hear the the experience that you had at Roto VR and how companies are navigating this time. Yeah, quite tough to be really honest. I um, I came before going to Roto VR. I was um, helping a company um in wales where i was based at that time and they were a company that specialized in limousine bookings it's really weird very odd business but very successful business um an amazing entrepreneur called tej and he essentially owned hundreds of domain names around or thousands around the us and the uk and then had some amazing software in the back end where people would call up to book a prom limo hire and it would go throughout our call center in Cardiff to some boy from the valleys who would book him a car in California somewhere and then hook up the deal and get done. It's a great idea. And I kept saying to him, my wife stopped her and she's been panicking about this and started, you know, panic buying and storing our roof full of rice and shit for like weeks before, you know, months before it was in the news, right? And I kept saying that my wife's telling me this thing's coming and, you know, it's overdue and it's going to be a big deal. 
and you know, this pan this thing called COVID and or coronavirus we were talking then. And look, we need to start preparing because I'm really, really worried because we were launching a new platform that was meant to be completely diverse with a whole bunch of other things and wedding cars on there. And I said, we have to do it right now. We have to move now. We're not ready, but we have to go because we're going to be screwed otherwise. And um, yeah, no, it was this whole, you know, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And yeah, two weeks later then, or a week later, then came the pandemic and everything disappeared overnight, um, which happens. And like an amazing entrepreneur he is, he's, I always say this, good entrepreneurs bounce. <laughs> they bounce. So, you know, so this what happens. Types of things, yeah, what types of things did he bounce to? I mean, how did they shape it? Oh, I just, he, you know, he bounced, yeah. he, he's a serial entrepreneur, so he bounced to PPE. <laughs> so he was fine. He bounced straight to PPE contracts and he had manufacturing contacts in India. And he's, uh, nice. he's never, looked, never looked back. And now he's relaunched that company anyway, and they're doing great, the old one. So he just paused everything and restarted. But um, I ended up moving to Roto just after the pandemic hit. And I'm sure I know that the, the team won't mind me sharing this, but pre-pandemic, we sold 80%. So just, just for the listeners at home, Roto VR, we make immersive virtual reality chairs. So these are chairs that spin 360 degrees. Um, they're not virtual. They're not virtual. They're real chairs, I promise. Um, and you, we have a little head tracker. When you turn your head, the chair moves with your head. So you can turn 360, it rumbles and vibrates with the sound of the game. It works with any software. Um, they're awesome, a little bit of kit. They're the only chair on the market that's fully immersive. We're the first one and the only ones currently in the market that, that has this. And um, so for us, everyone thinks, well, obviously you must be selling business to consumer. You must be a B2C company. But when I came on board, we're actually a B2B company. And we actually sold 80% of our chairs to the virtual reality arcades. So arcades were 20% of our market, then universities, and then the military, because our chairs stop motion sickness in virtual reality, which no one's done, and they keep people safe. So if you are a fighter pilot, for instance, and you're doing work in VR, which a lot of these drones may be flown in, these chairs will stop the motion sickness so you can stay in virtual reality for longer. So for the military, they love the idea. So um, it was actually the American military it was one of our biggest customers at one point. So yeah, so we sell lots of these sort of the, the, these things. So the arcades were the big issue. So that was eighty percent of our customers overnight. Come COVID, no one's reopening. No one's opening arcades anymore, and then suddenly everything falls off a cliff. So suddenly we're stuck in a position where we've gone. Well, hang on, we've got this chair that's great. Um, we've completely specialized in a B two B market, and now we have to go B two C uh shit <laughs> so yeah overnight, it's tricky to build that overnight right yeah so we had to redo everything we re i i came on board at that point so redid the strategy for the company and how we're going to grow it and scale it and the models behind how to do it working with the shareholders with the investors all the stakeholders to get them behind the new idea and how we do it raise more cash uh, raise some more cash again get prototypes done, change out, you know, completely change the design of the chair to change the cost of goods so we can lower them to get prices more right for consumers and do focus groups for consumers and new target markets and everything else. And it's been a monumental shift um, and it's been a lot of work, but it's great because we've got there. And um, 
we're just a bit of uh, hot news uh, next week. We're actually launching a new uh, strategy for the company, um, which will uh, which is going down the route of another company that's done something similar around the world, um, but their chairs aren't as good as ours, uh, and they don't do the same things. But well, they don't. They they have to use their software, and they're a bit right. boring to be honest. They don't spin. They sit there and do nothing. So they're just chairs. Um, anyway, so we built we're building arcades and shopping centers. So we're going to be opening our own series of virtual reality arcades uh, with our chairs in shopping centers near you. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I do yeah. know that in you know, so our our head office is in Manhattan, in New York, oh, yeah. and there is a kind of a virtual reality. I don't know what it is. It's it's kind of like I think it's called the VR experience. It um, is. And, yeah, and it, yeah. I sold eight chairs to them. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So I yeah, probably, nice guy. <laughs> yeah. Then we, I. Um, then I probably sat in one of the, one of your chairs for sure. You did. My, we, my... Um, it's a great it's a great venue. We um, we uh, we flew the the owner of that venue down. Well, the, the owner of that venue flew himself down to Texas to meet one of our clients to actually sit in one of our chairs um, about a, just over a year ago to see how he how it worked, and they uh, they loved it. Yes, they bought eight of us. So yeah, but it's great. It's it's growing. It's a new popularity. And of course, the future of virtual reality, what COVID has taught us as society, and I'm, I'm not sure how much of America you've gone down this route, but in the UK, remote working is going to be the future. Um, I mean, a lot of people are worried about the, what they call the water cooler moment. You know, that moment where you're with all the staff and you come up with those ideas and there's a lot of worry about losing them. And if you look at the market and you look at people like Apple, but um, Oracle, they're all working on software um, for office productivity um, and hard uh, office, office productivity software and virtual reality. And some of the stuff that we've been working on ourselves as a company is, you know, holographic um, keyboards that work in virtual reality and out of virtual reality. Um, um, so building the hardware to be able to support it. Um, holograms where we can sit in a room in our VR and our Roto VR chairs and actually see each other face to face, but be in different locations. Um, so you can sit there and use it as an AR VR productivity suite um, when the software comes along. But a lot of the major players now are working on the software to do this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the space that uh, RotoVR is in is only one that will grow, uh, if definitely for the general consumer market, as well as the executive market, for sure. Mm. Um, and I think you're spot on in terms of, of that remote working element being there in some form or fashion uh, going forward, for sure. And one of the best things we've had in the VR market and the gaming market is is, is Facebook buying Oculus. It's just been... So I always I always use the comparison, and some people don't agree with me, but don't care. Um, <laughs> I always use the comparison of, face, uh, of, of um, smartphones. So when we first got smartphones as a society, we had Apple, and Apple led the way, and they said the price is going to be X, and this is the charging cord it's going to look like this and then we had uh android come along and said you know this is what we're going to have it's going to look like this and then we had nokia build a smartphone and sony ericsson built a smartphone that did something slightly different and this is what vr has been like for years you have lots of these different headsets that come on board and say these are the power plugs we're going to use these are the charging cords these are 
you need this thing, you need this room, you need this bit of hardware, you need this, you need that, you need only works for this type of software. And most importantly, headset costs would cost £6,000 a headset, or then they would cost 2000 but be crap. And then no one could decide what the market was. It was so up and down and everything was so expensive. But since Oculus have come on board, they've sort of, the smartphone market, we had Android then come and Android sort of said, no, this is the price of smartphones. And when you had these two big pillars, Apple and Android, they set the market and they set the bench pole, that they benchmarked it where everyone else went, okay, great. So we're going to have an Android software or we're going to have the, you know, so we'll go to the Android software route and then you had that or that. And we could decide as consumers and the price could come down. And that's what we've now got in VR. So we've got Facebook now, who make losses on every single Oculus Quest headset that they sell, that have now come out and they're selling it for 299 Now, for the first time ever, that's a price that people, normal people can afford and it may start to get that sort of market churn. But now we've got, uh, was it PlayStation now coming out and announced their new, the new headset coming out at 399 There's Apple who are bringing out now an a, um, a, a VR AR headset around, uh, I think around 500 quid. So the pricing points have come down. We're getting major players in the market starting to stand up. And one of the biggest problems we have as hardware manufacturers is every second day, there's, there would be pre historically every second day a new headset would come onto the market that requires new technology to be able to make it work. And if you make a piece of hardware that has to be compatible with headsets, you need some sort of continuity in the market so you can invest your R and D in the right areas to make sure you're not throwing money against the wall, but at the same time serving the customers and not just the trends. And that's the problem with gamers. Gamers love the new. It's a positive thing, but gamers love the new the new bit of tech that's out. So unless you can keep your piece of hardware updated with all that tech and be at the top of that market, it makes it really difficult. So I just celebrate the fact that now our industry has a market leader in Facebook, and I can't wait for these others to start growing and, um, you know, some normality. Really, yeah, no, that but... will be growth for us. That will be the growth for the VR market because there'll be acceptance in people. So absolutely, sorry. no. I think that they're that that having those kind of standards are helpful. At least, at least, kind of some level of structure there with the big players, so that you know, uh, partners like yours, like your company, can essentially really design appropriately is key. But I mean, honestly, I, I just I definitely think that. Uh, the future is very bright for what you guys are doing. But tell me a little bit about kind of the, just a the broader kind of early stage business operational landscape that you're seeing over the next kind of like 12 to 18 months. I mean, what, what, are, what are companies thinking about right now? And you know, what do you think are going to be kind of the key topics for them uh, over the next 18 months? Um, I think some of the main ones are going to be I'm I'm particularly concerned. My particular concerns, I suppose, are going to be around uh, economies post-COVID and what's going to happen, um, especially when we start to look at. Um, uh, there's going to be more lockdowns. There's going. I I don't think the pandemic is anywhere near to being over, um, and I think some markets are going to open up early. But again. Looking at the UK market, if things, especially the fact that we're going into retail, so if things start to open up too quickly, what impact that will have on us as a business and risk 
mitigating? So how the how the hell yeah, do you I, I, uh, you know, we have a team in in London, um, and and one of our team members today uh, was sent back to quarantine because he'd gone to a pub, I guess. And I guess I didn't know this, but in the UK, I guess you have to sign in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. And he said he got a notice this morning saying, sorry, you know, somebody got COVID in your in that bar. Sure. So you've got to go. You've got to go home for a while. And yeah. um, so you're absolutely right. We're certainly not not out the other end yet. But the thing is, they still get to work. And I think, you know, they still have to work. It doesn't mean he hasn't got COVID. He's just got good. You know, it's a fine if you go back to and. This is why I think the future is actually going to be at home working because these things are going to happen more and more. We have to be able to adjust as companies to be able to support that and that environment. And there's so many things that do concern me about that because I've said this for years pre-COVID with high street retail dying. It's the whole thing of there's a whole bunch of people's pensions that have in pension companies and investment funds have invested in those high street retail uh, buildings because they were safe blue chip assets. Now suddenly they're not going to be full anymore. So prices are either going to have to drop or they're going to stay dormant, and it's going to be a show, a face off for a little while. But that's people's pensions that are going to be devalued. And I always have had this worry because it's not as blue chip as safe as, as safe investments as people think. And they're going to be devalued, and that means people's pensions are going to get devalued, and there's going to be consequences for that. And I'm very curious to see that and how that affects the market. And FX is the other thing that worries me. Uh, foreign exchange, we do a lot of work because we manufacture in China, while at the same time sell majority of our goods in the US. The US is one of our biggest markets. So we sell a lot in the US, the USD against Grant against the pound and the pound against, uh, you know, against the, well, it's really the USD because it's China. You have to work in USD anyway. So that whole uh, FX exchange rates was really interesting. And it's been, you know, small little changes for us can make a really big deal. Um, so making sure that what happens in our economies now in a post-COVID world that we're on top of it. It's amazing. I've never watched so much American news in all my life. Even it's a lie. Come on, we had Trump. That was awesome. That was that was the one good thing about Trump. It was no, I'm not going to get into politics, all right? But on the funny side, news was really entertaining. <laughs> it was like a, it was like a comedy sketch show every single well, night. It was awesome. Exactly. Well, I mean, love him or hate him, it was entertaining. Okay, let's just say that. We'll leave it at that. But it was um, yes. there was something to talk about. But the um, leaving politics quickly, uh, the other issue, which is politics for us in the UK, is Brexit. So Brexit is still a massive issue, especially for companies like ourselves um, who sell to Europe. There are major unanswered questions that still haven't been answered in our point of view. Um, the ports, oh my God, you I don't know what it's like in the States, but we have major issues in the UK with our ports at the moment. Um, stock. I mean, anyone who does what I do will understand straight away that, you know, parts, anything that comes in on a ship, if it's not three months late, you know, you pay for a container a year in advance and pay for it and it's still four months late. No, I, I think you're actually highlighting one of the biggest issues that um, really I'd say product companies have, um, at least physical product companies, um, you know, that whole uh, supply chain. It's just oh. a mess. It's just a mess. And, it needs um, to be sorted. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, 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 and I, I joked, uh, I, I um, just got a new apartment and tried to order uh, a new couch. And the couch, the couch that, that I wanted uh, wasn't going to be available to come for another four months. And I was oh, like, no. but I, but, but I, I, I don't have anything to sit on now. Like, <laughs> I need a couch now. Like, I never thought like, uh, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's just funny how long these things take. But Brad, it's been amazing to talk to you today. I mean, I I I love the work that uh, you guys are doing at, at Roto VR, and that's a really interesting challenge, um, challenging industry, but an exciting one. And and certainly talking to you about the the uh, the things that uh, small to medium sized business startups have to be processing and going through to be successful uh, is it's really an enjoyable conversation for me, and it's one that I. I think that a lot of companies, unfortunately, don't spend enough time getting their head around those challenges up front. Mm. So I'm glad that I'm glad that they can talk to Brad Channer about those things. <laughs> uh, so, Brad, if someone wants to reach out to you, tell me where they can find you. Yeah, they can uh, drop me an email if they want. It's at uh, Brad at Accelerate Me, which is A-C-C-E-L-E-R number eight M-E dot com. Oh, just find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Bradley Channer in the world. Um, I think I think now there's like a, 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 a young kid somewhere in America with the same name, but uh, I think it's been pretty easy to determine between the two. So, uh, excellent. Drop me a thing on LinkedIn. I am I am not one of these LinkedIn snobs who ignore people. I'll just tell you to go away if you want to sell me FX. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on Uncaged. Uncaged is the show that provides a voice to executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the commerce of tomorrow. And, and Brad has been working with Roto VR as well as several other businesses over his career to help them navigate that, that first, second, third stage as they're, they're scaling up. And um, we've been talking about such a wider array of issues from funding to some of the challenges that you just have when you have a scaled business to, to build product at this time. And so it's been amazing to, to hear Brad's perspective on this stuff. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on Uncaged today. And I look forward to having you back. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Matt. Nice to meet you. Cheers.